Amen. First Samuel chapter 11 this evening. Welcome to 1972. <laughs> Mobilizing Saul, that's what we're considering this evening. We remember that he has been announced to the people that this is your king. And they said, long live the king. And then he goes back farming. Well, God is going to mobilize the king, and the king will mobilize the troops to meet this aggressive force that is coming against their people on the east side of the Jordan. So, before we get to that, uh, just some, some more discussion about the man Saul. Um, he's an easy person to dislike, and as I mentioned last session, one of the challenges that I have is to not be unfair in my uh, analysis of his character, but I think he makes it too easy. Uh, He's just a rotten guy. And this is the beginning of his last uh, noble act, this 11th chapter. He's going to show up as a good king, and that'll be it, this 11th chapter, as I mentioned. His goodness and wise judgment in this chapter, though Samuel, of course, a great influence on everything good that was happening in this 11th chapter. It's an anomaly. It's not who he is. His goodness was a glitch. Uh, If you understand that he was an opportunistic person, he would just do anything to to make himself look good, and, and he'd step on anybody to get there. And uh, here he behaves behaves honorably, but watch out, because he takes a good act, a good deed of his own, and he uses it to get to the bad deed of his own. And uh, some people are just opportunistic people, and you've got to watch out for them. Once you've met one of them, you, you really don't want to come in touch with another one. An opportunist looks at a crisis and asks, how can I make this work for me? Regardless of what other people are are going through, at whatever expense it may cost them. And this chapter records one glorious moment in his reign. He rallies Israel's troops, skillfully defeats a serious foe. And then after this heroic beginning of his kingship, he goes on to dishonor and disgrace. And so I say to myself, thinking about this man, should I feel sorry for him? Well, in some ways, we always feel sorry for, the, for those who are just wicked and just won't snap out of it. But the sorrow, if there's any feeling of sorrow, it's for the, his victims, not for him. Like, you can't, you can't say, oh, this poor guy, why, well, he's killing people. And this is a trap I think we fall in today. We become more concerned with the one who is the problem than the people who are getting the problems because of the problem. And so I want to uh, stay focused. Uh, Jesus was that way with the Pharisees. And he called them for what they were, you know. He called them a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, dead men bones, if I can say it that way. So uh, these character studies, which we're getting through this verse-by-verse exposition of Samuel, they're very, very beneficial to the church, to Christians, They force us to look at ourselves and re-examine ourselves to ensure that we're not going down the path of the men who are less than honorable, such as Nabal, Laban, Ishmael, uh, Balaam, 
and Saul and, and, and many others. And we're going to meet quite a bit by the time we get to the end of Second Samuel. Well, we look at first, verse 1 now. First Samuel 11. Then Nahash the Amorite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Now the Amorites, these are the descendants of Lot, an, an incestuous uh, result, uh, result of the, uh, his daughters, Lot's daughters. The name Nahash means snake or serpent. He might have taken pride in that. Uh, he is a bit of a bully. He is a vicious man. Um, Moses defeated the Ammonite king, Sihon and Og. How would you like to be named Og? Men, thank your mamas when you get home. Thanks for not naming me Og. Uh, but anyway, uh, they attacked the Jews. Moses said, can we pass through? We won't hurt anything. And they came out with swords against Moses. And Moses whooped them severely, both kings, and took their territory from them. And gave it to uh, Reuben and Gad and uh, half, uh, half of the tribe of Manasseh. that became their territory. Uh, they liked the land for their cattle. They asked Moses, could they stay? And God approved it, and they stayed on the east side of the Jordan. It wasn't the wisest move, but, you know, the Lord can't say no to everything. It's even in the Proverbs. You've got to be careful about how many things you shoot down. Choose your, choose your battles, we would say. Because you end up crushing. You end up crushing people unnecessarily, trying to get everything to be just perfect. We still pursue, pursue perfection, but we have to... Remember, we were working with imperfect people. Um, Moses, as I mentioned, gives the land to these tribes. But the Amorites wouldn't let this go. They're survivors. They, 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 they wanted this land back. That adage, you know, to the victor goes the spoils, they refused to submit to this. And so they made another claim on the land in the days of the judges. You remember Jephthah, the son of a harlot. He was... An outcast who became a hero, and he defeated them. First, he refuted them soundly. When he said, you know, let's, let's recap this history. And he, he lays it out to them. And they still come against him with swords. And we pick it up, Judges 11. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them. And Yahweh delivered them into his hands, and he defeated them. Twenty cities with a great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And by the way, this is the modern kingdom of Jordan's territory today. Uh, Nahash, this king, this serpent, as he would go by, uh, he still felt entitled to these territories, and he resumes the feud. And it's going to cost him. It continues in verse 1 at the bottom, And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Well, they wanted to seek terms. They couldn't, you know, they figured, you know, let's figure this out. By the time we get help from Israel, from the west side, where the majority of the tribes were, Nahash is going to take us out anyway. Maybe we can get an agreement. We'll pay, you know, some sort of tribute to him and he'll leave us alone. And so they're seeking a negotiation. Verse 2, And Nahash, the Ammonite, answered them on this condition. I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all of your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Well, that sounds fair. <laughs> so now the monster is out. We know who he is. 
he is a savage. And he's not looking only for the territory. He wants to humiliate the Jews. He wants to bring them harm. And if he can get this one to fall, the dominoes, they'll all start going down. This is the way of the world. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls have a version of 1 Samuel. And as I didn't bring it out with me, and I'm not going to read it. Don't, not necessary. But uh, they give a little bit more information. And perhaps it's commentary, uh, maybe part of the original. Uh, they tell us in that section that this same king, Nahash, had previously conquered the Reubenites and the tribe of Gad and had taken their right eye out of the men and who he did not kill. But that 7,000 of these men managed to make it to here, Jabesh Gilead, and uh, join this little city in, in defense, and he is now following them. Uh, it's really not doctrinally important, that information. It's just a side note of history. I'm not sold out on it, but it, it makes for interesting reading as a Bible student. But back to the mutilation that you all want to hear about. <laughs> This, uh, of course, would render the men at a great disadvantage in battle, uh, particularly in those days. You held most, most of the men, unless you were Benjamite with left-handed men, but most of the men held the shield in their left hand. And so uh, with the right eye missing and that shield, they're, really they're blind on the battlefield. And Nahash, of course, knows this. Not to mention the gore. Whose job is this? I mean, what are you doing today, honey? I'm going to go take some eyeballs out of people who surrendered to the king. It is grotesque. I would pick uh, death on the battlefield before the mutilation. Because once you were mutilated like this, they could do anything anyway. It'd be foolish to surrender to such terms. And I think that we have to remember... Years ago, the plane that crashed in the Andes, that soccer team, another reason not, why, not to like soccer, and the survivors ate some of the bodies to, to survive. I think I would just would have froze. I mean, I just, I'm not, you know, I can't. I can't eat Mitch. I mean, just <laughs> Johnny, Benny, whoever, I just can't. And then live the rest of my life, so you know what I got a craving for tonight? Strange. <laughs> so... So you just, you know, you just some things, you, just, you know, it's just time to go. Um, the, and I, I would have just chosen the battlefield over, sure, take my left, I mean, my right one. I have a left one still. Anyway, he says to bring reproach on Israel, and so he's very upfront with that. He, he wants to humiliate them. We, we see this again in the New Testament in a very big way. They weren't satisfied with just killing our Lord, murdering him, they wanted to do it publicly. They wanted to shame him in front of everybody, and, and that they did. And, of course, we read in Hebrews 11 that he endured the cross, despising the shame. Remember that the next time you hate something in life a lot, that your Lord also had to face things that he despised just as much, if not more, than you, and yet he faced them as our Lord. And we are to face them as his subjects, which is a high calling. Well, verse 3, Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, 
hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. Now, it reads kind of goofy to me. I mean, you know, okay, look, if we can't find people to kill you back, then we'll come out and surrender. It's <laughs> just kind of cartoonish to me. But on the other hand, the inhabitant, and more of a, back to reality and away from the caricature, they had to look out the window and say, he's not got enough yet out there to take us. We've got time. Otherwise, Nahash wouldn't negotiate. He would just come in and, and kill them all. He wouldn't have to negotiate. He would dictate the terms. So that's probably where this is coming from. Now, Nahash would prefer they surrender than a long siege because he then has to supply his troops. They get paid by the spoil, and it's a delay involved. So many things can go wrong. It's, it's better if the, if the city just capitulates. And so that's where the, the bargaining chip for him. Arrogantly, uh, Nahash is, of course, saying, I'm going to make a name for myself. Sure, they can have seven days. Who are they going to call? They're a fragmented people. They're not going to rally for Who's going to cross over just to save this little village? He's probably doing all this in his head because, again, he's arrogant. And Satan does these kind of things to the church. This is a story we read it in chapters, I think it's 36, 37 of Isaiah. And we hear uh, Rabshakeh come out and say all of these bold things against the people of God, how it's pointless to defend themselves uh, they'll give them horses if they can find men enough to ride them to meet them on the battlefield. And he's just mocking them. And in the end, of course, the angel of the Lord comes in and wipes out that army. Well, things are going to go a little bit differently in this story. And so Nahash agrees because he doesn't really have the forces, evidently. And, of course, he's underestimating the farmers and the herdsmen and the shepherds. And he thinks he has a standing army and they have just this militia and they'll never make it against him. Verse 4. So the messengers came to, Ge, uh, to Gibeah of Saul and told the news and the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Well, you say to yourself, why are they coming to Gibeah where Saul lives? It's Gibeah of Benjamin, but Saul has been made king. And so now he is the central figure in introducing his hometown. But there's a lot of history with Gibeah and Jabesh Gilead. Uh, so the messengers come there because in the days of the judges, in chapters 19 and 20, you remember that um, the savage Levite who found his concubine dead because of the men of Benjamin and he chops her up in pieces and sends the pieces out to the tribes to rally them for war. Well, the Jews, of course, come to war against Benjamin, but one tribe does well, one portion of a tribe doesn't show up, and that's the men of Jabesh Gilead. And so they were penalized at the end of the war. And it just it's just a comedy of errors that aren't, isn't so funny. So they send troops out to Jabesh Gilead to wipe their own people out, but they keep four hundred of the women because they need to uh, redeem the tribe of Benjamin because there's no women left. 600 men only are held up. They have no wives for the tribe to continue, so they steal the wives from Jabesh Gilead. So now there's a connection. The survivors of Jabesh Gilead and the daughters in passage of time, there's a link between the two. And uh, it's a good 
relationship, I, I should add. And also their new king is there. So there's a lot of incentive. It's about 45 miles away from Jabesh Gilead to Gibeah. Now, these things are kind of important to us, the distances. Because there's no car, there's no interstate, 45 minutes for us. What's that? These, they're moving by, you know, foot and camel, horse, uh, not very, very quickly. There are no uh, high beams on the horses or whatever animals they may be taking to the fight. No flashlights, no little helmet light cams or anything like that, lights. And it just is rough going. So Saul, who reigned for 40 years, we find that out in the book of Acts. You would like to find it in the Old Testament, but we're told that in Acts 13. Well, he dies on Mount Gilboa, and he is then decapitated. His corpse, they separate the head from the body. Then they take the body several miles away to Beth Shien and they impale it on the wall as a trophy. Well, it's the men from Jabesh Gilead who go and retrieve his body and bring it back to Jabesh and bury it. That hasn't happened yet. This is the beginning of Saul's days. That's just looking ahead at, at what's going, going to happen. There's, a real, there's this relationship between Saul, the tribe of Benjamin, and Jabesh Gilead. And that is what is uh, very much moving the story forward on a human level. So all the people lifted up their voices and wept. No mention of them lifting up their voices to God, incidentally. We would expect that from the people of God. It's sort of like a church that plans without asking God what to do. It's, uh, that's not the way, it's, it's not ideal. And it stands out. Uh, well, the clear implication to the people, if Jabesh Gilead falls, what's going to happen to us? So they have, they're, they're, they've got skin in the game, you would say. Verse 5, now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. So, well, in good news, Saul's not indifferent. He doesn't look at this and just kind of move on and say, I want to mind my own business, get to my own destiny. He's not doing that. <clears throat> he was always indignant towards Israel's enemies. That, that, that is a fact. The problem is that he also hated the anointed of Israel. The enemies of Israel, he had disdain for. But the anointed of Israel, he hated too. David, the priest, Samuel, as mentioned before, at one point was concerned that he would be killed by Saul also. That's how mean this guy was. But uh, he only has really about three wars that we read of, with the Ammonites and the Philistines, whereas David has almost you know, countless in, encounters with the enemy. Uh, but after being presented with the details of what's going on, he rises up, Saul does. The, scene, the kingdom seems to have gone dormant after he was, okay, you're, here's your new king, and he just goes back farming. Because there's nothing really urgent going on. They're just kind of rustic, and that's that. But this now catapults him to the front. He now becomes a central figure, and God is behind this, mobilizing him, moving him. Who will then, he will then move the people. There's a surge from God. 
And uh, the people had asked for a king that would deliver them from their enemies. Well, now they've got one. First Samuel chapter 8, this is what they said to Samuel, that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Well, this is now beginning to happen for them. We'll come back to some of that maybe next session in chapter 12 when Samuel gives his farewell speech. Verse 6, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he comes in from the field. He's the king, but he's not acting like one, nor is he treated like one, and the nation is, is kind of just going along with its business. This then happens. Now this God, our God, is God too, uh, puts the spirit of, of uh, war in him. That's what's necessary. God empowered his judges the same way. And now he is doing this to his king. And to Saul's credit, he doesn't ignore the impulse. He's not hiding amongst the stuff this time. But again, back to personal comments. And hopefully they're helpful to us. Because I'm reluctant to compliment Saul because of his full-blown evils. It just can't be overlooked. You just can't. Going, you could go back to his cradle and you could say, there lies a serpent. Uh, knowing the, the, the history. Now, if I was living then, at this time, I'd be all, yes, this is our king, because Samuel's endorsed him. That's all I would need. Once Samuel says it's good, I'm good with it. Because if Samuel says it's good, God has told Samuel first. But that's not how it is. How it is, is I know this guy. Yet the Spirit of God comes upon him. Uh, God gives fools a chance not to be fools. That's the point. That's what's, why it stands out to us. Knowing the story, we look at Saul and we say, God is giving this guy a chance to not be who he's going to be. You won't be able to blame God. Why did you, you know, why didn't you help Saul? What do you mean help Saul? I gave him Samuel. I gave him David. I gave him Jonathan. Otherwise, other, other than God reaching out to Saul, there's nothing appealing about him. He's repugnant. He's depraved. And a man or a woman, we look at him and say, I don't want these characteristics. I do not want to be an opportunistic. I do not want to be so self-centered that I'm willing to hurt others to keep myself in the center. I mean, all of us are self-centered to some degree. One of the easiest illustrations of that is just take a group picture and show it to you. If you're in the group picture, you're going to look for yourself first. More than likely, unless you really hate somebody in the picture, you'll be looking for them first. <laughs> so, or the other way, I guess you really love somebody. Uh, but uh, it, all of us are selfish to some degree, and, and that, that's not necessarily bad. It's when it breaks loose, the proverbial tail wagging the dog, that's when we have a problem. Well, on the outside, everything, superficially, superficially speaking, about his flesh is appealing, like Hollywood, like Wall Street. On the outside, it all looks wonderful. All that glitters ain't gold, and that's the truth. Polished on the outside, but disgustingly filthy on the inside. Matthew 23, verse 25, Woe to you Pharisees, scribes, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, 
But inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. You know how powerful it was in those days for Jesus to say that to these people? I mean, he got right up in there. Woe to you. And at one point they tried to stop him. Teacher, you're offending the bigwigs. And he said, woe to the... <laughs> he goes, goes loose on them too. It just... You have to love it because they were guilty. And Christ was totally justified in his rebuke because he was extending an opportunity for them to say, I repent. Um, John the Baptist was doing the same thing. So we will find that uh, apologies are apologies. Saul's, that is, of a homicidal, prideful, unstable, selfish man who claimed to follow Yahweh, but really wanted Yahweh to follow him. Titus, again, we read this Sunday, it's worth repeating. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. There are, there are groups, or people in groups, that uh, will insist they are Christians. I love the Lord. But they trample the word. They trample his commandments. They try to justify, well, but I love him. Uh, it's psychotic. And here's the scripture verse that refutes that. You profess to know him, but you have no intention to work to follow him. You just insist on defending your wrong, and you, are, you can't beat God. You know, the old play that was on Broadway years ago, your arms are too short to box with God. Um, he's got reach. <laughs> you can't beat it. Anyway, looks can be deceiving and talk can be cheap. Looks are not always deceiving, but they can be. We have another way of saying it, right? Don't judge a book by its cover. Uh, verse 7. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of Yahweh fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. Well, this is reminiscent back to that grisly, savage Levite who butchered his concubine in Judges 19 and 21. 19 and 20, as the story runs. Uh, this reminds us of that because he cut her up and sent her out, but he's using oxen. So there's <laughs> some improvement there. Um, I don't know what, what he should have done. All He was a brute by nature, and this is how he did things. Uh, Samuel rallied troops without all this drama, where they won at uh, the battle at Ebed, what became Ebenezer. Uh, but Saul is less savage than the Levite uh, and his, with his concubine, but not as refined as the prophet when we get to 1 Kings and he is going to illustrate to Jeroboam, you're going to take ten parts of a twelve-part kingdom. And he takes a garment and he, he tears it in strips. That's better than butchering an ox or a couple of oxen at the least. Anyway, his leadership style, uh, not, not something to be followed. Uh, question that comes up, did Saul use the anointing of the Holy Spirit that we read about in verse 6 to terrorize his people into action? Maybe, maybe, certainly an indication that he's, he just doesn't have the right stuff. Whoever does, it continues in verse 7, 
not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle. Now, of course, he's going to do this to their oxen if they don't come with him, which is a heavy financial burden on them. Uh, at least he wasn't threatening to kill them like they did in Judges. But here's another interesting thing. Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, is it because this is now royal etiquette, the king gets first building over the prophet? Or did, did Samuel, who certainly gave much of the information we read in the books of Samuel uh, to whoever finally put it together, but not all of it, of course. So Samuel didn't record his own death. Uh, that would have been impressive. But uh, I think that Samuel repeats the story as he heard it spoken, uttered off the lips of Saul. Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel. Um, I think that Samuel knew Saul had a self-esteem issue. He really esteemed himself. It shows up again in another of Samuel's reports, 1 Samuel 18. Now, of course, it's the report from the book of Samuel, not the man at this point. 1 Samuel 18, um, <clears throat> this is after David had, had killed the giant. So the women sang and they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry, and, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdoms? He's a petty man. Instead of saying, well, yeah, David's been out on the battlefield. I mentioned to you, we have to, about three battles of Saul, but we've got a bunch of them with David. But this is how he was. Those things didn't escape him. And he's not going to say, whoever doesn't come with Samuel and me, he's not going to put himself second. Because he's too insecure. He's too paranoid. And self-absorbed and self-impressed. The thing about self-impressed people is most of the time they don't deserve, they're not as good as they think they are. Sometimes they are. <laughs> Sometimes you get somebody who's really good and is a braggart at the same time, and that's a drag. But in this, his, in his case, he just really doesn't have... I mean, does, can you find a Christian that says, I love King Saul. I love him. I want to be just like him. You can't find a Christian that would say that. Because the evidence is too strong. And we have a lot of Saul in the story of the Bible. It's almost as though God is saying, look, you might miss you know, how mean Nabal was. He only gets about a chapter. Uh, you might miss that Ishmael, his hand was against every man, and every hand's man was every man's hand was against him. He was just, you know, abrasive. He just caused trouble, Ishmael. Laban, we know he was a scoundrel. But Saul, there's a lot of information about him. And it's on purpose. Verse 8. Then he numbered them, and Bezek, the children of Israel, were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. Now, Bezek's about 11 miles away from Jabesh. So that's, that's where they're going to launch the mission from. They're going to move 11 miles at night to get to the battlefield and surprise the enemy. Without lights, probably moonlight, unless it was a new moon, which it likely was not. May have been. I wasn't there. Uh, 
They've got pictures. If you turn to page in your Bible, <laughs> there's a picture of Saul in the moonlight. Anyway, uh, standard practice to rally the troops and number them for war, to know what you have, to know how you can marshal them. This distinction made between Israel and Judah is an indication that it was... Uh, these comments have made their way in, which doesn't corrupt the material at all. It's, it's actually quite, quite realistic. Um, it's an indication that this was, is, is at some point, the final publishing of Samuel's scroll, which was originally one book, but we have it divided properly into two, was done after the kingdom was divided and after Solomon's death. Uh, is the final publication, or a final. I know it's a paradox. It sounds like it's contradictory, but it's not, and we don't have time to really go into it except to say that uh, there have been amendments here and there. Anyway, uh, other known contributors. I mentioned that there are other people involved in giving us the books of Samuel, First Chronicles 29:29. Now the acts of King David first and last, indeed, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer. Well, we don't have Nathan and Gad's books. We have Samuel's books. But, of course, we don't have all of the story uh, in the first part. And if Nathan and Gad contributed to the scripture then, of course, we have every reason to believe that there were others also. The school of prophets, there were those that would have uh, been allies of these righteous men and wanted to get the story in print and yet had to minister to their generation as they published it. Uh, that's why we read things like, in those days, the, the, the prophet was called the seer because the, the, the language is evolving. Verse 9, And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by this time, when the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. I bet they were. <laughs> that should have been a hint to Nahash when he saw those party hats and party favors <laughs> whipped out by the Jews running around. He just said, huh, somebody's either had a birthday or they're getting help. So... Um, some of this, looking back, is kind of cartoonish to me. It was real at the time, very scary stuff. But some of it is, um, because it is given to us in fragments, it's, it's, almost, it's, it's amusing. But here is Saul doing the right thing. Again, it'll be the last time. He is going to say, oh, we're going to help you. We're, we're coming to your rescue. Mostly because how dare you come against us kind of a thing in Saul. And he did not make a habit of displaying such courage and such righteous indignation. Instead, again, he becomes petty and homicidal and a bully and a fool on top of that. Um, David, however, of course, displays the fortitude, the courage, the care, uh, just the wisdom. There's so many. I mean, he makes goofs up. He makes mistakes, David does. But that's what they are. They aren't his character. They're products of just being human. Well, he says, before the sun becomes hot, it's before noontime, we'll be there. Um, always, even in the worst people, I think there are flashes of brilliance. At some point that you see these flashes of brilliance. 
and the most despicable of people, but it never gets developed, so that's why they are despicable. They, they never, it's not like they've been dealt a bad hand and they have no chance to be good. They've got every chance that everybody else has, but they choose not to be. And these are the great lessons that come out of the Bible. When Nabal had a chance to reason as a businessman, he had a, when David's men came and said, look, we've been watching over your guys, we've spared your sheep, can you just spare a few of them? We've saved you 20 times more than what you would have if it weren't for us. You think he would have said, that's just sound business? You know, sure, take a few sheep. No, he gets all up in their face. Who's David? Who do you think you are? Get off my property, kind of a thing. Uh, he, Nabal had every chance to be a hero. And I read that and I say, well, I've got a chance to be, a, you know, in, in my sphere of life, as you do in your sphere. We have a chance to be a hero as a parent, as a husband, as a brother, a son, a daughter, whatever we, we, we are. Not what we choose to be. <laughs> what we are assigned from birth. Um, as a man or a woman, we, we have some say-so in spite of our weaknesses. In fact, the weaknesses of the battlefield. And every Christian struggles, every single one has struggled with them. You read the writings of other great men of God, women of God. Brainard, you know, ministering to the Indians here in America. And he, he just was so... Uh, just hounded by his own flesh. He'd write about it in his journal. I hate these things. He would, you know, and he didn't ever tell us what they were, and we're glad. Um, I think he, he just could not win at solitaire. And he just... <laughs> All right. Verse 10. Thank you, Lord. The verses get me out of all the jams. Because in a minute, you'll just forget all about solitaire. Therefore, of course... Uh, verse 10, therefore the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So the implications of surrender, that's what they're implying. It's honest, but it's ambiguous. Tomorrow we will come out to you and you can do with us whatever you want. But they're leaving out that they'll be swinging swords when they come out. <laughs> and if you can do something with that, then go ahead. And that's what they're really saying to them. If, if you can beat us. Um, and I, I think, I like it. Uh, that shows you the spirit of these guys. They were like, okay, we're getting reinforcements. Now we can talk junk to these people. Sure, we'll be out tomorrow. Do with us whatever you please as we're cutting your heads off. Uh, I like it, verse 11. I mean, well, what should we say? I mean, it's real. It's very real to life. And these were clever people. We have no right to look at the ancients and think that they were somehow not as smart as we are. They were not as technological as we are. Um, sure, if you went up to Abraham and gave him a phone, he wouldn't know what to do with it. <laughs> Just, <laughs> All right, uh, verse 11. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no one, uh, so that no two of them were left together. Well, it's not an uncommon tactic. We've read of it before. Gideon employed the three-prong attack. Abimelech, also in the book of Judges. The Philistines will do a similar thing later. 
It must uh, just a standard tactic. Uh, I do believe others were part of the planning. I, I don't think all of this came up. Saul came up with it. Um, he's certainly part of it. I don't. He's not complete, uh, completely incompetent. This is a surprise attack before sunrise. And uh, the Ammonites were not prepared. Under the cover of darkness, they moved into their territory, and they started killing them. In fact, it's almost like an assembly line. The way it reads, they just killed them until the heat of the day. So this is the third time the Ammonites tried to get back their land and failed. Sort of like the Arab world today coming against Israel, trying to take that land back. I mean, how many times does Israel have to beat them before they understand that the, the God of heaven and creation is protecting the Jewish people as a nation. Well, and it says, and it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. I think this is a big part of the lesson also for us. A scattered army is no longer an army. It's a target. Now they were targets, individual targets. They were no longer a fighting force. And we don't want to retreat. We talk about, you know, the weapons of our warfare not being carnal. We talk about the, the armor of God. Whenever we talk about that, we are quick to mention that when the Romans designed their armor, they wanted their own troops to know that you had no protection in back of you. If you retreat, uh, like if you run away from a battle with your back to the enemy, you're going to be uh, more vulnerable. And, and there is a way to re- to. <laughs> to advance backwards. You say it that way because you're never admitting <laughs> to still that, that defiant spirit. So I read this and I say, you know, each Christian should understand this. That when we go off to do our own thing, we run away from the battle line like, like this, we're separated from others, we're no longer an army. We're, we're targets. And we see this played out repeatedly. Sadly, many churches force this upon good Christians. Sadly, some churches become so apostate that no decent Christian would ever attend there again. And uh, then that individual has to become an army with the Lord. Verse 12, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Okay, so the battle's over. The Ammonites have been defeated. Israel is now, uh, have, they're debriefed. They're together again, invigorated by the victory, emotional. I think this should be a law against interviewing athletes after they come off of a very big win. This is like, what is he saying? This is all gibberish. I Maybe I'm the only one who thinks that way. I think they certainly shouldn't when they have a big failure. How does it feel to get knocked out in the first eight seconds of the fight? Well, it feels wonderful. I'm going to knock you out right now to show you. That's how it should be. But anyway, they're just, they're, they're emotional. So we've won, yeah, let's win. Who are those guys that didn't want Saul to be king? Let's bring him out, let's kill him. That's the wrong way to handle this. It's not right. It's not giving any space for people to correct themselves. It's just be a church discipline. One of my least favorite topics, but... It's mandated by the Lord. You give people a chance to fix it. You cannot allow them to continue in uh, blatant sin 
and assemble in the body. And so you have to say, look, we're going to disfellowship till this gets fixed. We do what we can to help you. But if you don't fix it, we, we, we have to do more than profess to be believers. We have to uphold these things. And very unpleasant. Sometimes, few times, they work with us. Most of the time, they cop an attitude. And then they try to tell every, turn everybody else against us, whoever they can. for just trying to hold the word of God. And when we get to the epistles, we find it. When Paul says, I can't believe you people are bragging about this stuff. You've got a guy there who's living in sin, and you think you're showing him grace. All you're doing is infecting the congregation. That's why Corinth was so loony. Well, one reason why. And Paul comes in to clean up things, and because, as he says to the Galatians, because I tell you the truth, I become your enemy. What kind of nonsense is this? So, listening to such stories, we say, Lord, may it never be me. May, may I get it right. Uh, anyway, Saul does the right thing at this point. Again, verse 13, But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today Yahweh has accomplished salvation. <laughs> okay, I, I just can't give him credit. I'm sorry. I believe he glanced over at Samuel. <laughs> I just can't. I don't like the guy so much. If he poured water into a glass and didn't spill a drop, I would think he was up to something. It's just that kind of a relationship. You, I, I think if you read a, material enough, it becomes so real to you. You can almost, you know, taste it. You're part of it after a while. Is it not that way when you read the Gospels? Do you not feel as though you're in the crowd when Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount? You know when he's condemning certain sins, he's talking to the guy next to you? <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> anyway, it was an attempt to be one. Uh, I don't know if I'm the only one that feels this way, but I have a grudge against Saul, and I, have, and I don't apologize for it. It's not a malicious grudge. I think it's just built on facts. And if... I mean, just imagine if I was like... The angel of death. I would be saying to the Lord, now? <laughs> it's like, no, he's only seven. <laughs> well, he's, we know what he's going to do. Let's just do it now. <laughs> All right. You know what we need here? We need a laugh track. <laughs> All right, verse 14. <laughs> applause meter. Uh, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So, you see, Samuel's there as Saul is saying this. And I just don't think, I, if, if, it were, if, if David were here instead of Saul, being knew it being a king, and Samuel was there too, you know David would be looking over at Samuel, looking for cues, looking for approval or disapproval. It's just the way it is in life. Until you get your, you know, proverbial sea legs, uh, you, that you look to your mentors to, to approve or disapprove of what you're doing so you know if you're on the right track. I mean, when he says, no, we're not going to kill them, he looks over at Samuel. Samuel might be saying, no, we need to take these guys out now. I, but they, did, they didn't. That, they, they, they made the right choice. I just want us to understand there's no magic here. Uh, could I be wrong? No. Uh, maybe Verse 14, then Samuel said, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. As we discussed, he's anointed at a place called Zuf. That anointing would be something he'd never forget. I mean, you just don't pour oil on somebody's head. 
and they forget like five years later. You always remember that. Um, then he was proclaimed in chapter 10 in front of the people as king, and he goes back to farming. But then this battle comes up. Saul steps to the front, and he doesn't mess it up. It all, it's a victory for Israel. Now he's their king. And there, the, 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 uh, the, the kingdom is, is united. Samuel, where he says, come, let us go to Gilgal to renew the kingdom there, he's all about public worship. And for them as a nation, uh, he's about national worship. Uh, you have to love him for this. Uh, he doesn't, he, any chance he gets to bring sacrifice to the Lord to the forefront, any chance he gets to honor God, Samuel takes it. Every time we see him, there's something godly going on about this man. There's, there's it's like three, there's more, but the three that just come to my mind now, Joseph, Samuel, and Daniel. I mean, these men were just like always on top of their, their, their ministry. They're just always doing the right thing. When, when Joseph vets his brothers after those years in, in not being around them, he wants to make sure these men are not the same men that threw him into a pit and sold him. And he goes about it quite methodically. Verse 15, so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before Yahweh in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before Yahweh, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And we covered this last session, what Gilgal, what it meant to the nation. This is, again, the second crowning of, of Saul. This is more, a more enthusiastic crowd, of course. And uh, the dark ages of Saul now will begin. And it's going to be, I think, a very educational walk through the Scripture as we see David emerge and we see how David responds to Saul. I don't know about you, but David makes me feel small because David had two excellent opportunities to end it with a Saul chasing him. And he doesn't take him. And he's right. And God blesses David. Uh, we talked about this on Sunday. What the Lord takes, he breaks. And what he breaks as offered to God, he distributes on behalf of others in ministry. And that is largely the life of David. By the time God was finished with David, he was ready to be king. Like, um, un unlike no other king among men that Israel ever had. None of them reached the level of David. Not Hezekiah, not Josiah. Uh, David's just in another class. And the Psalms declare that. But what, most importantly, what tells us that David was in another class is the Lord Jesus himself associates his eternal throne with David. I mean, it's incredible. It's, it's God saying, uh, this is my work. Well, we're very early, so I've decided to recite some poetry. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> now, Father, we uh, hope that we are getting the lessons from the Scripture just enough to be useful to you. And if there's any surplus, uh, that would be a bonus May you receive all the glory, and um, may you get us all home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.